today I'm having a gas with Duncan Ward. Duncan is a remarkable and unique person. Um, he has had the most extraordinary life starting with, bizarrely enough, a rollerblading, like a professional rollerblading habit. And then followed this, I don't know how to describe it, it's just it really is a fairy tale life that led him through India, studying Indian classical music with Ravi Shankar and eventually to the London Symphony Orchestra. Um, so it's one of those discussions where I cannot really um, prime it with anything like, I can't, you know, I can't give you a, here's what you're about to hear because it takes so many interesting twists and turns and I think it's best really just to get into it. And so that's what we're going to do. Um, I hope you enjoy the show this week, everyone. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening. Uh, this is Having a Gas with Duncan Ward. Today, I'm having a gas with Duncan Ward. Polymath, conductor, roller skater, and we're about to find out God knows what else. Um, Duncan, how are you today? Very well, thank you. Yeah, Yeah, I understand we've both had a bit of a saga getting here. We've just driven for six hours, but Duncan has been on a tour of Europe in the past like 12 hours. It's been um, quite intense, yeah. Uh, three different orchestras, three different programmes, um, three completely different cities, but with no gaps in between. So mm -hmm. literally um, a concert in Amsterdam in the Concertgebouw with my, my orchestra there fills out... Uh, Overnight to Helsinki, starting uh, Helsinki with Finnish radio the next morning at 10, three days work, do a televised concert there. And uh, overnight to Dresden, start with the Dresden Phil the next morning, uh, 10 o'clock. It's been quite intense. See, that, um, that's funny because that sounds like what I would expect to be. I've got an impression in my mind of like a classical touring schedule, which would involve in my mind days of breaks and expensive lunches and all that stuff, but not the case, apparently. It it totally varies, but yeah, um, it, yeah it can be pretty rock and roll. Yeah. yeah. You were uh, talking, you said my orchestra there. Tell us about your orchestra. So uh, the orchestra where I'm chief conductor is the South Netherlands Philharmonic, uh, Phil's Out. I've been there uh, two years already and they've recently extended my contract to stay. Um, yeah, fantastically uh, flex flexible group of musicians. We do everything from very contemporary things to uh, increasingly old things. They've done their first uh, sort of French Baroque with me, some Rameau. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, they're, they're, they're a great bunch of musicians and I'm there 10 weeks a year um, doing a whole range of programs and little tours of uh, the Netherlands and uh, a little bit further afield. So 10 weeks a year, does that mean that part of the ebb and flow of your life is you have to fill the calendar all the, all the time or, or not, not like it's a, not like it's a mad sales pitch of ringing around, but it's, it sounds like a really varied life is what I'm trying to get at. It sounds like you get you know, 10 weeks a year with this orchestra and then who knows what else the rest of the year. You know, how how do the, you know, opportunities come in? We're really trying to do a masterclass for aspiring conductors here. So, uh, yeah, how, 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 do you, how do you make a living as a conductor? You know, it's a broad question, but let's dig into it. it um, in my case, it's uh, become incredibly varied because I have a very uh, broad interest of, of musical passions and, yeah. and, 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 and styles. And as the... Uh, career's grown. I'm lucky to be invited both by major symphony orchestras around the world, also mm -hmm. some opera houses, um, also contemporary music ensembles, also 
period instrument ensembles doing Baroque things, um, uh, plus a whole range of um, projects with um, other sorts of musicians, folk musicians, jazz musicians, uh, musicians from India, Africa, uh, Cuba. Um, and yeah, then it becomes really a question of, of uh, what to accept when and, and how to piece it together and, and, and fit as many things as possible. Right, so but, you're at a point in your career where you have enough opportunities actually coming in that you can be selective about which ones you take. Yeah, which is which a good is position to be fantastic. In. Yeah, yeah. and you're super lucky. very young to be in that position. You, know, you say you're 34. Yeah, yeah. So that is so. So you've got the you know the the rubber has hit the road, and you're at a position where like like we were saying the, the opportunities are coming in thick and fast. Um, how did you? Because we'll get on to why we're here. We're at the Barbican Centre here in London, and we'll get on to that in a moment. But how did you get onto the uh, get on the rails, so to speak? How did you begin? Uh, the process of getting opportunities coming in. When was when was the the moment where it tipped over from pursuing opportunities few and far between to having that stable life? Let's say. Um, it's it's hard to pinpoint a, a moment because in a way it's been a constant development since I was twelve and started conducting on my own, um, and. Uh, I suppose the, the 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 very first professional orchestra I had the chance to stand in front of uh, was in a, a masterclass situation um, with the London Symphony Orchestra um, when I was 20. And that summer I did a range of such masterclass type opportunities. And then the professional uh, invitations slowly started to trickle in um, and I was very lucky that uh, Simon Rattle yes. uh, heard about what I was up to and invited me to uh, Berlin and um, created a position for me to assist him at the Berlin Philharmonic, which was an incredible yeah. training ground. Yes. Um, and uh, of course, um, that led to some more bigger opportunities with orchestras across Germany, across Europe. Um, uh, and it, it, it steadily grew and I had an agent who also discovered me and, you know, signed me to, to help organize these things. So, um, I mean, a, a part of it was being, was catching the attention of, uh, you know, an influential uh, mover in the industry, Sir Simon Rattle, which is no small achievement um, and presumably was a, a great honor, an overwhelming, uh, an overwhelming honor, uh, a moment like that. Was there a sense of trepidation at the opportunity of a lifetime and you know making sure that you fulfilled the opportunity or did it you know was there any nerves is the simple way of saying that or did it all feel very natural did it all just seem to seem to become successful of its a you know of its own accord of course there are um there are always nerves and mm -hmm. uh, for many people the the Berlin Phil and Simon are a sort of mecca in the classical world. Yeah. Um, and so to to turn up there and the, the first thing I was uh, invited to assist was uh, the second episode of Wagner's Ring Cycle, mm -hmm. uh, Die Valkyra. We were going to be doing a um, concert performance of that and it was I was invited to assist just for that one-off project. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't know, I... 
music's always just been what I love, you know, and I just yeah. uh, go for it. And yeah. um, I, I, I rocked up. Also, time is incredibly just down to earth and just an amazing, warm, genuine human being. You so know, a good character to have as a mentor. Exactly, mm -hmm. and um, so welcoming to everybody from the word go, and yep. has time for everybody involved in a in a space. Um, it's, there's no sort of hierarchy or stuffiness so it's, it's interesting that because a lot of the mainstream world gets its exposure to you know the world of elite music through let's say movies like uh two examples that come to mind movies like whiplash where jk simmons plays basically a drill sergeant who uh, you know abuses his students into greatness and the other one that came to mind was black swan darren, Ar darren aronofsky's movie about uh life at i believe it was the new york ballet and they're both they both depict a world of um extreme duress to try and bring the best out of people and honestly growing up i thought that's what this kind of world would entail so it's really gratifying to hear that that was not at all your experience that it was a very welcoming environment and that the best in the world were looking to find people to let's say take their place looking for the next generation to 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 adopt that responsibility i think it um absolutely can still be like that in certain places and with 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 different personalities and different characters and the sort of um stereotype maestro image um of even still 30 40 50 years ago was this brutal dictator kind of um evil god-like figure that shouts at people and gets yeah. their way and stamps their foot and makes people feel small and insignificant. And yeah. um, I just believe it's total nonsense and has no place in today's society. And gladly, I think most of the people of, of the generations that followed would, would agree, you know? And thankfully, uh, I think uh, classical orchestral music has become more collaborative more yeah. a genuine sharing and a give and take yeah. um because um let's face it uh, you stand there as conductor you don't make any sound you mm -hmm. know um well ideally unless you're yeah. sweating and foaming yeah. at the mouth and grunting i mean um you uh, you rely on this group of amazing people in front of you uh to make the best sounds possible yeah. um under your guidance and encouragement yeah. and i always come back to if, if I was back sitting on the other side of the stick, um, I played French horn and piano, what would make me want to give my best? Yes. And um, I'd, I'd, I never lose sight of that because mm. I think the, the, the best we can possibly do is uh, bring the very best out of the people in front of us through through nurturing it and encouraging it and being very demanding and very ambitious and very uh yeah never losing sight of of, of uh, the image of the music but it has to be a a sharing process do you get to have much of a like a uh, close relationship or you know a re relationship of any sort with the different musicians in the orchestra point being there are many of them and to be able to connect with them one-to-one -one on a personal level it might that that might just be too time consuming do you have to be quite good at establishing that connection reasonably promptly so that you can kind of draw on it in the performance absolutely you have to be 
very sensitive and sensible to uh, the energy in the room and sort of get to suss out the different personalities that are there. Mm-hmm. Um, but as you say, it would be totally impossible. I mean, sometimes I'm, if I'm a guest conductor, I'm with the orchestra for three days. Yeah. Um, in the UK, they're famously sort of lightning fast. The orchestras, some orchestras are doing projects on one rehearsal and the concert and that's it, you yeah. know. Of course, you're not going to chat to everyone. Um, typically, and it can be very nice, um, some players come and engage more than others. Maybe they come with a, a question about a particular piece. Oh, how do you want this bit? You know, it's done various different ways. You yep. know, I just want to understand more or I think there's a problem we have here in the part or whatever it is. Um, so, yeah, sometimes you engage with with uh, individuals more than, more than others. Yeah. But typically the, the work you're doing with is, is with a, a big group of people and this can be 40, it can be 60, it can be hundreds. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you're doing a big symphony with a, or an opera with a, a huge chorus and soloists and whatever as well. It's really a lot of uh, people. And that's just the people we see on stage, of course. What many people, I think, um, perhaps don't imagine with the, the conductor life is that the work really never stops in the in the break time too or the, the lunchtime. You know, there will be always uh, a question from some management or some, some stage technicians or some... All sorts of people that that make this incredible experience of sharing a concert with an audience. Yes, and while we're here, here to both speak to the people who might follow in your footsteps and might want to hear what uh, the life is like, there's also a temptation. I also have a temptation to try and address the mainstream impression, mainstream impression of conductors and what conductors do. We talked about this a little bit uh, a few weeks ago. Um, that the cliche that one always hears is that um, a conductor merely keeps time. And we were discussing the fact that really, and I want to hear your, you know, thesis on this. It's, well, it's, it, it, it could not only be that, otherwise long ago it would have been outsourced to something that merely keeps time. Uh, what is the essence of what you're doing? What are you doing that changes from one conductor to the next you know what's the actual essence of the role you know we'll address the mainstream first then we'll go over to the uh, the devoted so i mean um the the other apart from the keeping is, is all you do keeping time the other mainstream question is it's the one um, I most, but yeah. all, all the musicians have the music anyway yes. you know why why do they need you to tell them what to do well um, again, the, the the role varies depending on what sort of piece of music you're playing. But um, one way I always think of it is um, you have got uh, a, a big group of um, highly talented individuals, um, all of whom could have uh, opinions about how to interpret the markings in front of them. And one of the things we have to do is bring together these people behind one unanimous uh, interpretation um, of of how this particular piece of music should go. Mm -hmm. And we can uh, do that in many ways. The most pure are which through our gesture. And through gesture, you can control not only um, how fast or slow they're playing, but also the sort of... um, articulation and, and, and texture of how short or long the notes are. Mm-hmm. It can be about the the colour of the sounds they're producing. Is it more misty? Is it more sharp? Um, it can be 
of course, how loud and soft. Um, and any number of these parameters we're constantly thinking about in the way that we then shape the journey through that piece of music. Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, you know, the, the, the really great uh, masterpieces by Beethoven or whoever or whatever the music is can be performed in very many different ways. Yeah. And um, we have to get quickly to the essence of um, with this group of people, because I do adapt how I would approach something depending on uh, the orchestra in front of me, mm -hmm. um, how would we like it to go? And then, of course, the, the, the wonderful extra element when you're not in the middle of a pandemic um, <laughs> is, uh, is, is that real-time live concert experience shared with an audience and the energy you get from them and the energy of the particular hall you're in and um, that, you know, no one performance or one night of a tour will be the same as the others. See, that's really interesting because that is absolutely something that I want to hear how it changes between rehearsal and performance. I imagine they feel entirely different. I mean, we're here in the empty barbican right now and... Uh, not, I expect you don't rehearse here, but everything's going out and dissipating, right? Nothing's catching any of the energy. Um, that's a rehearsal. And then in performance, there's a tension because it's a high wire act because there's, there is the chance that it could go wrong. Um, how does the... How does what you're doing change between rehearsal and performance? Because another thing that we could... Another thing that could be perhaps a criticism leveled by someone not from this world would be, well, if you rehearse them and get them to do it how you want, why would you need to be there during the performance? What changes between rehearsal and performance? So the nicest thing um, uh, as conductor um, in, during the performance is I, I no longer have to think about what has gone wrong and how I might want to fix it. Mm -hmm. Because uh, we're just doing the here and now. Yes. I always think when you're conducting um, in a rehearsal, you are always in three time zones at once. You are thinking ahead of time as you're, as you're playing something, um, how exactly do I want this to sound? You're in the moment listening to what comes back from the gesture you give. Mm -hmm. And uh, always in parallel, you're then, as you go further, analysing what you've just heard, how it compared to what you dreamt of mm -hmm. and what you need to do about it. Is this something that's going to automatically be better because they've now understood you the next time you run it through? Or is it something you need to particularly address with an individual or a section or pull apart? Um, I mean, many, many psychological games of, you know, how do we uh, fix that? Yeah. And for me, the biggest blessing ever is to get to the concert and turn off that third part, mm -hmm. turn off the analysis. Because once it's happened, it's happened. Yes. As you say, it's a tight wire act, but we're in the moment, we want the audience to have this incredible experience of enjoying this music. And for that, you need to be totally where you are now and a little bit in the future of how do I bring the, the group into the next moments. Yes. Um, what happens to your sense of time when you're performing? Because it sounds a little bit like what you described was akin to what people describe as mindfulness, where you're thoroughly in the present and it can it can sometimes make time slow down or speed up and it can go in a flash. How does how does it feel? Usually feels it goes in a flash. Yes. I mean, I've, is it like a trance state? An, yeah, a little bit. Right. Yeah. Um, 
such an intense energy and focus mm -hmm. of 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 being there and doing it and um a lot of I often get the feedback from musicians after a concert wow you know the 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 energy you gave us or the, the energy we shared yeah. um, was, was, was so exciting tonight. And of course, um, we also have uh, performances nights where it didn't feel quite so special or frankly, the, the audience, though maybe at the end, they all said how much they loved it or whatever. Mm. Actually, they felt a bit sleepy during the, during the thing. And we, we didn't really feel the energy of the excitement that we would get on other nights it's 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 human yeah. um but when that those magic moments happen and everybody is in a state of concentration where i can do things totally spontaneously um and yes you've rehearsed uh and yes you've prepared a version of what it probably will go like yes but actually these people um are uh, incredibly sensitive and even if they look like they're not watching um, musicians have this sort of uh, uh, like a sense, sense of periphery exactly yeah um, and um, it can be amazing how uh, the subtlest thing you do can uh, affect a, a performance in it, real time it's funny because it's 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 kind of analogous to what we're doing right now because um, we know that we had a brief uh, Zoom call a few weeks ago where we uh, would just do a quick recap of the major points of your life, the things that will be worth talking about, which already I feel like we barely scratched the surface, which is great. Um, and there's a temptation always to basically prepare a conversation. Make sure it goes from one point to the next, to the next, to the next. And then all, you say all the things you say. I ask all the questions I wanted to ask or perhaps that other people may have wanted me to ask. And then... You know, there, there, there's a there's there's a there's a degree to that to which that wouldn't be engaging because people are more in the moment when something's happening spontaneously. And as we were saying, the analogy the analogy to the performance. You know, right now I'm trying to make sure that I'm listening to everything you say, paying attention to it, and grabbing something from it and throwing yeah. it back at you. And um, if I just let you run to the end of the answer and went, cool, right? So tell me about exactly. the other thing. Yeah, that's Much the difference between exciting. rehearsal and performance, maybe. Yeah. And 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 that's where I mean where the the best performances and I believe the best way of, of making music is it's that exchange, you know. Yeah. And if some uh, clarinet player goes off on his solo and produces some you know magic new color or takes a bit of time in a moment and you catch them and go with it and it affects the way everyone else plays, that's just such a joy. Yeah. And in the in in the opera too, that you give the singers the on the stage, the, their sort of support and, uh, uh, and and comfort that yes, you've worked on something and you are steering them, but they have the the, the space to embody their character in that moment mm -hmm. and uh, breathe in a different way or, or or take you in a different direction, and you're there as a as a give and take to steer that orchestra with them. Mm -hmm. um, and 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 make yeah spontaneous beautiful music. Look, comparing concerts with opera for a second. There's you know you were talking about working in three different time zones and uh, in rehearsal. And when you're with an orchestra in a concert situation, do you feel like you are? And, and I'll hang, we'll hang this onto opera in a second. Do you feel like you're a conduit between the orchestra and the audience, or do you feel like it's not that? Do you feel like it's 
one thing that you're all in together? Or do you feel as though there is you and the orchestra are one unit and the audience is observing that? Does that make sense? It's a bit abstract and conceptual, but... I, I tend to feel like I'm uh, one unit with the the, the orchestra mm-hmm. and 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 shaping that sound, but I I don't feel like the audience is separate somehow right. because I feel like they're a very active part in the process. Right, they're not just they're not just it, it could be anyone. A different audience will have a different result. Exactly. Right, and um, and. Uh, though we're sat in front of two cameras now, uh, <laughs> if we replaced them with some cameras or some robots or whatever, you know, that that wouldn't do. Yeah. Um, you know, the real leave, living, breathing, coughing, um, uh, applauding spontaneously, whooping, whatever it is, yeah. um, falling asleep yes. thing is real and yeah. it, it affects what we do. And, it, uh, and I know that there's some people in the classical world, more in the world of soloists, that can break that spell a little bit. I know my old piano teacher, who I won't name now, would be known to kind of chastise the audience if they'd kind of broken that spell a little bit. But I presume that freedom isn't, well, not freedom exactly, but I presume that's a little bit different when you're, you know, there must be a lack of, something of a lack of uh, ego or a lesser sense of ego when you're with the orchestra, because neither one can, you know, exist without the other. I think that's true, yeah. And I, um, again, there are colleagues who, terribly frustrated with people clapping or making a sound or something um I, I i tend to side more with what's really important is that people feel something yes and if if they have felt something we've done our job mm-hmm. and uh i mean yeah last week i was doing the Forjak eighth symphony in the Kirkbow and was an absolutely packed hall 11 o'clock on a sunday morning um, which i always think is a bit of a miracle as well that people come um, out for that yeah <laughs> and um we we finished the first movement and it mm. finishes with a great energy and a great flourish and uh in in the you know split second of of silence after the music had stopped an old guy on the balcony went whoa like <laughs> <laughs> and everyone sort of chuckled and some people started to clap and yeah. actually it was a, a beautiful moment cause yeah. what did the composer want i mean yeah he wanted people to take a gasp of breath and think wow you despite know? the fact that it violated that convention of between yeah. movement yeah Exactly. So, I, I mean, I, I didn't plan what I would do, but I think I sort of turned around and smiled because, yes. I mean, it was such a nice moment. And it's like know? it reassures you that, okay, we're on some kind of solid ground now. We can maybe take some more risks than we would have done. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You were uh, saying you feel like one unit with the orchestra in concert, but in opera, uh, is that the same one unit with orchestra and performers, you know, or is, is it still, you, you know, you and orchestra are one unit, performers are another and audience is separate. Opera gets super complicated because of the the number of yeah. um, elements of the arts that are involved. Yeah. Um, and yes, it can feel can feel like the the singers are a uh, a different breed, and it can feel like the um, stage directors are on another uh, mission, and uh, the set designers and the lighting designer and the goodness knows what all these elements that are making opera tick. Mm-hmm. Um, ultimately, um, and I'm most excited by that art form, is when these elements really collaborate and really uh, combine well. Yeah. Um, and when that openness to what each other are doing and respect and understanding, mutual understanding is there, 
then I love to feel that all of those things are, are one unit and we are serving um, this particular opera that a um, librettist and a composer have created and we are bringing it to life uh, in all its technicolor mm-hmm. uh, for that audience. Um, and I suppose, does that, does that depend on the um, vision, let's say, and obviously diplomacy of a director having all those cohesive units? And uh, then, the, you know, because the, uh, the thing that can, I think we spoke about this on our warm up call, the thing that I couldn't get my head around with opera because I'll admit it's not something I'm well educated in. I saw Aida at the Royal Opera this year, which was a miraculous experience. But I couldn't tell who is the, um, you know, uh, commander in chief. Is it Sir Mark Elder who was conducting the whole thing? Or is it as it would be in a theatrical situation, the director is the commander in chief? What's it like in the world of opera there? Um, there, there are lots of humorous answers I could give, like <laughs> who's paid the most. Um, yeah. But um, it's uh, and, and, and a famous conductor said that once about whether the singer or the conductor's in charge. Right. Yes. Whoever's fee is larger. But um, it, 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 it is. It can be a bit of a power play. Um, all those elements are extremely important. You've got lots of people that are maybe in charge. Yes. Um, and. Uh, as I say, the most exciting is when people put their egos aside and, and yeah. it's really collaboration. But it can the be other, one, yeah, okay. So. It can be one or the other. Yeah. And, and the other thing that's become a sort of practice um, is, uh, bet- let's keep it easier, between conductor and stage director, um, is there's a sort of convention of who's in charge at what point. So um, at the very beginning of the rehearsal process is usually a purely musical uh, rehearsal or rehearsals. Almost like a table read in a film where you're not acting it. Exactly, exactly, yeah. And um, then there's usually quite a a long process of weeks of building up the staging rehearsals where frankly, the stage director usually takes the lead of um, they're in charge of this rehearsal and they are going to give the directions for what they want. And that too is an interaction with the singers and should be an interaction with the music team too of of keeping the whole thing bubbling and progressing. Um, once the, there's a sort of magic moment when, when all, all those rehearsals, I should say, are, are usually done with piano right. doing the orchestra role. So you're in a rehearsal room usually and then you progress to the stage but there'll be a lonely pianist sat in the uh, orchestra pit um, tinkling away and um, the moment that the orchestra arrives um, then it's seen as the conductor's rehearsals so you're then deciding what to do what to how to shape it I can Um, see how the power play comes about yeah (laughs) exactly yeah okay especially if um I mean, did you say that the conductor musical would be there from day one? Yes. Again, that can be... um, It depends. Um, (laughs) I love to be there. I really enjoy the the artistic process. Some conductors, as they become more famous, um, like to disappear off more often and do other things. Is that also because their their, their schedule is already full anyway? You know, they've got a season at... Exactly. Okay, yeah. Yeah. And we all, it's a bit strange, but we all sort of plan our 
lives three or four years advance and wow. that can be a very strange thing um but in that situation you would always then have an assistant conductor that was there doing filling the place and would have a bit less power but would be uh sort of doing the role of yeah. keeping the music running well this is a world the world of putting together theatrical stage show of any kind is something that is you know something with which you're well experienced from our previous conversation i remember why don't we just go back uh, a, f uh, a fair bit in time and talk about your first experience writing a musical because that's something i couldn't believe i think you told me that you wrote your uh, you wrote your first um full length musical when you were a teenager is that right early teenager yeah i was 13. Uh, well we uh, yeah, I conducted it when I was 12, so I wrote it when I was 11. Um, okay. Yeah, I'd just arrived at uh, secondary school, and um, uh, I should say that I, uh, it, it wasn't that that was somehow in my DNA. Um, uh, I didn't come from a um, uh, family of musicians. Yeah. Um, but you just uh, had that obsession. I had that obsession. I'd, I'd done many other things as a kid, dancing, whatever. Um, and one of my elder sisters had been bought a little electronic keyboard when I was seven. And um, I was obsessed with this thing yeah. and was picking out melodies by ear and sort of improvising little melodies and writing little gifts for Granny's birthday or whatever it was. Yeah. And um, started having electronic keyboard lessons and, 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 and gradually piano. and just loved it you know yeah. it really became a, never felt like a chore it never felt like a chore you know i would come home from school and be playing away yeah. and um i just loved it and um i i sort of discovered um more and more music through composing right um I, it was what i wanted to do i mean my parents also had a pretty extensive quite varied uh, records collection yeah. with folk and jazz and pop and some classical um so i would pick random things and be listening to joan armor trading one minute and you know mozart the next or whatever it was and was just sort of curious but i was a quite um fond of musicals at that time yeah. and um uh yeah sort of early jazz and musicals were my sort of um big loves and uh yeah i i, I it was a weird thing to do, but literally in my um, uh, first summer uh, of being at secondary school, I decided I wanted to compose a musical. Um, it was going to be on Alice in Wonderland um, and trapped myself away uh, composing a couple of hours of music wow. um, that that summer. And, you know, first on manuscript and then on the on the computer program and, and, and making it. And when I showed... Uh, I had a wonderful, uh, encouraging teacher at school um, who was the head of music, Simon Hayward, who was a trombonist, just a fantastic guy. And um, I, I brought it to him in, in September, this uh, score, and he had a bit of a flick through and he said, oh, Duncan, actually looks looks pretty good, what I can see on a, a tiny glance, you know. Yeah, like but kind I'm of uh, expecting, it's like, uh, oh, it's actually, <laughs> despite your young age yeah it's actually quite good and he, he, he it was like sorry duncan it's it's beginning of term it's super busy um i can't do anything more with this now but if you want to perform it just get on with it you know yeah. just just go for it brilliant oh, really okay well i'll do it and i got the school choir and we started rehearsals and 
um, put together orchestra, come big band to be the the, the orchestra, and um, auditioned my uh, academic teachers as the soloists and had little coaching sessions. Yeah, and. Um, Someone had to conduct, and I thought that might as well be me. And <laughs> yeah. um, I sort of invented what I had to do. I, I had the uh, piano in front of me, so I was sort of leading from the piano, but you know, waving my arms and giving the cues and whatever. And so at the end of the year, we put it on. Amazing. I mean, how did the other the musicians who were presumably other students? Yeah. Um, how were they with it? Because um, when I, you know, when I was at school, uh, I was kind of precocious but not to the same degree not by a long shot this sounds like more like leonard bernstein territory who famously taught himself music theory and then started teaching the other kids in the town but the the point is i was i was not well liked by the other kids because i think i was probably quite annoying about the small amount of talent that i had um but you seem to have quite a breezy temperament that people would find easy to get on with was was were relations with the other students all right because you know you can kind of imagine like this is a year eight and he's he's in charge what's going on uh, was it all okay on the whole, yeah. I mean, and to my amazement. And when I look back on it, I think exactly that. Why on earth did they agree to do it? Yeah. You know? And uh, it wasn't like they were missing lessons to do this. They were giving up their free time yep. to do these rehearsals. Yeah. Um, I remember, I mean, we, we, we put it on in like June or something. Yep which was, of course, exam time. Mm -hmm. And this I found a bit frustrating because some of the best people were yeah. those that were off doing their GCSEs and A-levels. And, you know, suddenly there was a bit of a hole, you know? Um, <laughs> I love how you're already, like, scrapping for people's contracts at that point. It's like, oh, I've lost them to biology. Oh, exactly, <laughs> you know, exactly. I thought I had them. Um, so this was a bit naively uh, um, frustrating. But, um, yeah, somehow there was a goodwill uh, to, to, to come to the vessels and, and, to, and to do it. And yeah. people seemed to... Uh, yeah, people seem to quite enjoy it. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. And then, so what, did you replicate that for the rest of your time at school? Or was that the only one you did? It was the only one I ever did. Right. But uh, I I kind of never questioned after that that mm -hmm. music was what I wanted to do. Right. And I wanted to be composing music. I wanted to be performing music. I wanted to be conducting music. Right. So and for me, they were, all those things were linked. Yeah, as opposed to, yeah, you, I, will, I will pick one discipline that I like the most. How, what happened after school? Because obviously... Here we are, you're, you know, you're performing three concerts in Europe a week and then you know, preparing for this thing at the Barbican. There's a huge uh, gap there. What happened when you left school to get here? So already during my um, time at school, the, the musical interest intensified. I, um, I started playing the French horn, which mm -hmm. gave me sort of another dimension of re a, a real orchestral instrument yeah. and how to breathe and how to make these sounds and how another whole group of people think and you know how how you play together in a chamber ensemble or a orchestra um i was doing a lot of um uh, jazz too at that time right. um, what were you playing on because i don't expect there's a lot of jazz repertoire for french horn Could be wrong. Not, no. <laughs> that would have been super cool yeah yeah, yeah. missed my <laughs> niche um but it was it was piano or or, yeah. or keyboard and um around the same time i wrote the musical i I remember um, skiving a mass lesson and, and um, uh, uh, playing some ragtime on on the, on the piano in the hall in, in Dartford where the school was, and and a, a, a band from a trad jazz band from New Orleans was uh, setting up to do a little uh, concert that evening, and uh, they were listening a bit, and the guy came over and uh, was chatting, and oh, yeah. they said, "Well, do you want to play with us tonight?" 
And I said, oh, yeah, great. You know? So they gave me a, uh, a slot to play along with them and then a little solo piano slot in the, in the gig as well. And then I joined them at a, like a trad jazz festival. And this is still when you were about 13 or yeah. something? Wow, yeah. wow. Okay. And I, I, my, so my music tastes were just going in all directions. And um, I, I put with some students, we put together a like funk band mm-hmm. um, uh, doing more Herbie Hancock style, yep. um, more progressive jazz. Um, and we did little gigs with that. Um, I, was, I was discovering more and more the, the classical music world and, you know, putting on the whole Mahler symphony and sitting there just, wow, what is this? And sort of starting to devour scores. And the composing got more serious, if that's a word, Mm -hmm. Um, or at least changed genre a bit. And um, I started going to a junior trinity on Saturdays um, in Greenwich, um, where I could have uh, lessons with um, some even more experienced teachers and have, I mean, there were people coming from all kids, you know, young kids coming from all over who were um, more talented than I was. And I could really, sort, you know, learn from them as well as, you know, be. I'm saying, play at a higher level than in my school kind yeah. of thing, you know? Yeah, so finally it was, uh, sorry for adjusting the mic on camera. Because um, I would, I always found those moments quite over-facing where I, you know, I, you're a big fish in a small pond yeah. and then you find people more talented, as talented or more so than yourself. And there's two ways to... Uh, two ways to react to that. One is, oh, I thought I was special and I'm not, but it sounds like you took the appropriate response, which is great. A community of peers from whom I can learn even yeah. more. And it just it just pushed me to, yeah. to, to go for it. Not necessarily in a hugely competitive sense, but just like, like I have to get ahead. Wow, of this, this is this yeah. is amazing. And wow, we can that's what this can sound like, yeah. you know? And these people can compose like this and I joined the National Youth Orchestra. In fact, it's the, it's the only time I've performed on stage in the Barbican so far. Uh, <laughs> is is in the National Youth Orchestra. Were you on the French horn? Uh, uh, actually, I was on uh, piano that night. Wow! Um, I'd, I'd, yeah. And um, uh, or, or Celeste, um, yes. a bit of organ actually as well. Um, and uh, yeah, so th- that for me was a just a constant growing. Yeah. Um, and. Even more randomly than that, let's say, um, in my late teens, I, I decided one summer holiday when I was just turned 17, uh, actually just turned 16, to go to um, uh, India yeah. um, and uh, be uh, well teaching some piano there in various schools in, in, in Kerala. Um, How did you get that opportunity? It was more that I decided to do it but my uh, piano teacher at that time had uh, recently come back from a tour of India herself giving some uh, concerts and also master classes and she came back raving about what an experience that had been and um, how actually in, in lots of cities around India they were looking for help with particularly piano teaching there seemed to be a lot of interest in, 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 right. in learning piano and there was a shortage of, of teachers and so she's said at the end of the lesson, which I probably hadn't played at all because she was just wittering on, uh, she said, Duncan, you know, when when you're 30 and you haven't got a job and you haven't um, got anything to do, um, you know, you should go too, you know, uh, remember it. Yeah. Um, and I said, well, why do I need to wait till I'm 30? You know, just I've got some out. time this summer. Um, give me a few phone numbers and I'll set it up. Wow. Uh, yeah. And I, I did, went out with a friend and had a fantastic time. And when we were leaving the... 
students and the teachers and the parents were saying, well, you, you can't leave. When, when, when are you coming back, you know, or can you send some friends or whatever? Yeah, yeah. And, and this idea kind of stuck with me. And uh, through a, uh, a friend in a completely different world, in the finance world that I met through performing in London a year or so later, um, we got chatting about various things. And he said, well, if it was really so good what you did and so there's such a demand you should found a charity you should found an organization and provide for other people to do the same and so like most things in my life I said okay then if you give me a bit of help let's do it yeah, yeah. Um, and we did and this thing <laughs> grew and uh, spread to many cities around India and I was going back and forth a lot and of course through that I was discovering Indian food and Indian <laughs> classical music. Which and is a huge, huge discipline, right? It's one of like the major centers of music in the world. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, we think, oh, ancient Bach, you know, and where Western harmony that led to all our pop songs comes from. Um, but I mean, uh, their musical heritage goes back thousands of years yeah. and um, has been handed on from guru to disciple um, in a very personal, intense way, uh, all those years, uh, and continues to do so. And I was extremely lucky that the legendary uh, sitarist Ravi Shankar yep. heard about what I was doing, and um, I had the chance to meet him. And he said out of the blue one day that he wanted to teach me, and um, would I come and stay with them in in their summer home in California? Uh, and we had an incredible time, just the two of us, one summer. Um, this is amazing, because, I mean, a lot of people would find this to be a, um, like, not a flattering comparison, let's just say that. But this whole story has a kind of, like, um, like a kind of Forrest Gump quality to it, insofar as it's one magical fairy tale moment after another. You know, going and studying with Ravi Shankar, uh, because he heard about the great things you were doing in India, presumably at the age of about 18 or something like that. So what was, you know, what what was that like? Did you, was it a, um, was it, was it yet another interest that, you know, you thought, well, why not do this? Or did, did anything, did the influences of that scale system, of that harmonic system, and of particularly of that mentor, did that kind of get embedded into your musical life at all? It had a huge effect on me at that time. It really felt like another universe opening and different way of thinking about pitch, about rhythm, about life, frankly, mm -hmm. you know, because he was very um, inspirational, sort of spiritually and, and philosophically too, as well as being great fun to be around, even if he was 90 and I was 20. Mm -hmm. um, pardon me. And... Um, uh, we uh, certainly in the pieces I was writing um, soon after I left there, they all had um, uh, a flavour. Not that I was trying to composing in an Indian way, but it had, you know, absolutely um, opened my mind to other ways of, of, of sound. And I remained very um, intoxicated with how wonderful that music is and yeah. was lucky to go on to have various very beautiful collaborations with um indian musicians i mean including his wonderful daughter anushka yeah. um, who we've performed together a few times either his music or her music um but also other great uh, indian soloists who 
we've managed to do a piece uh, specially written for, let's say, traditional, but actually it's classical of another world, um, uh, Indian combined with Western elements or Western orchestra or Western uh, ensemble. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's interesting because one of the distinctive things about, uh, as you mentioned a, a moment ago, uh, the Western music tradition is it's kind of defined by its how recently it emerged and how rapidly it transformed. So, you know, as you said, we think about it as ancient because it started 350 or so years ago as we know it. You know, obviously you get um, you get vocal uh, polyphony and things like that kind of preceding it. But once you hit about 1650, things just speed up and, you know, be, keep speeding up through uh, different, you know, modes of presentation. And as you get to recording in the 20th century, it just hits a kind of flywheel yeah. that's still ticking even faster now. Um, whereas you said the, um, the thing that distinguishes Indian classical is it is in a real sense ancient and perhaps much, much, what, less, it has changed less over a much longer spread of time. And I get the impression that part of the characteristic of certainly sitar music is it's kind of grounded in a drone. There is this sense of like the eternal in one, in some of the musical features, you know. Um, I mean, is that a false impression that I've got there or is, is you know, is, is, is drone a big part of the sound of sitar music? You know? No, I think that's absolutely um, uh, fair. And in a way, I always think um, one of the big differences, um, Western music in a way has always been about harmony. Yep. Yes, there's melody, yes, there's rhythm, but it's sort of harmony that's... It depends on harmony to drive it forward. Exactly, yeah. yeah. That's been the, the major developing factor. Mm -hmm. um, and in a way, we've defined our compositional periods about what the sort of harmony was doing actually mm -hmm. you know how developed or non-existent or, or or whatever it was um and for the for the most part in um in the classical music harmony isn't there right and um, the, the two elements are, are melody and rhythm and um that's incredibly um complicated both of them and the interplay and it's incredibly uh, uh what they can do with those two elements, I mean, is completely um, well, just gobsmacking yep. um, and can portray an entire universe. But uh, it's 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 really not about harmony. Yeah. And um, this this was a this was a, a game changer for me because uh, it meant that the emotional associations with a single note. And not just emotional, but also pictorial and uh, religious or, or whatever, um, uh, become even more intense. And the way you approach that note and the way you um, play the patterns to introduce that note of the raga or, or whatever within the process of the piece is, is um, uh, incredibly powerful. And yeah. I remember the first time um, uh, Raviji's. Uh, a wife came to to listen to me playing, um, uh, trying to uh, extemporize a simple raga for mm -hmm. the first time uh, on the piano, um, and uh, you you introduce one note of the scale uh, at the time, and um, 
this particular uh, scale, if you imagine it in our terms, was sort of like C major, but with an F sharp. Um, and as I got to introduce the, the, the F sharp for, for the first time, um, there was this gasp behind me. <laughs> of, oh, you know, and I thought, oh gosh, what, what you know, what's happening? But it was just that th th this has such an intense yep. power and association. Just this note, yeah. you know. Well, it's like the way I mean, the, the way you described a C major with an F sharp. Of course, I would translate that as Lydian, yeah. and Lydian has a brightness to it. Yeah. And uh, it's there's um, a fantastic album I'm recommending to anyone who might be listening called India More by Christophe Chassol, who's a French artist. He went over to India and filmed a bunch of stuff in 16 mil of what he saw over there and uh, made an album out of the sound that was on this film. And I, it took me till what you were just describing there to recognize what it is that's dovetailing to make the album, which is to say that um, a lot of the recordings are, you know, I don't know the technical... I don't know the technical terms for, you know, there, uh, there's a Hindi chant going on and it is all melodic, as you said, with some rhythm on a particular kind of drum that I don't know the name of. And what Chassol injects into it is Western harmony mm -hmm. and shows how these two things combine perfectly. But someone, we had it on in, in, our, in our office back at Gas Music and someone in the office said, this sounds like The Simpsons. And it sounds like The Simpsons because it's Lydian. And uh -huh. it's amazing to, that uh -huh. that actually was what you were doing yeah. to bring about this yeah. moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So... That is just another part of a really rich history that you've had. And what's what's really fascinating about just, you know, you as an individual is you don't appear to be confounded by the variety of things that you could pursue. It's not, it doesn't appear to have been like, oh, which one of these things should I give my life to? It appears to all have been contributing or maybe it's still like, an, it's not like a set mold yet. It's all still ongoing. Um, has that ever, you know, you know, what do you think about that? Have you ever had that moment where you have thought, um, you know, maybe I could give my whole life to this one discipline? Or have you just been enjoying the ride of going from one to the next and seeing what, what is on the next page? Yeah, mostly I've just been um, embracing everything that I can, if I can. Yeah. Uh, and most years... Um, probably since I've been 12, I've ended up doing something that I would never imagined the year before. <laughs> um, even once stuff, start, stuff started to get planned a bit more in advance. Yep. And uh, this is just a, um, a total joy. Um, of course, the, the professional thing became interesting because once people are trying to, to sell you and promote you and all this stuff, um, of course, they want to put you in a box. That's right. And of course, they want you to um, specialize. And the amount of times I was told by people, yeah, Duncan, okay, great. Uh, but what do you really want mm -hmm. to do? Yes. You know, what, what do you really love? Yeah. Um, and I really fought against it. And maybe, I mean, okay, I've come quite a long way in the, in the way I have, but um, Maybe it would have been even faster if I had pursued one thing, but it wasn't me. Right. And I really said, look, I, I, I'm not going to say I only want to do Haydn, you know. I'm yeah. not, I, you know, it's just, it's just not for me. I love it. Yeah. Um, and I will do it really, really well if someone asks me. I will try. Yeah. Um, but uh, I'm not going to be exclusive. And mm -hmm. in a way, um, in the early conducting career, 
with me as also composing still. Mm-hmm. Um, I found very contemporary music relatively easy, yeah. um, could be very complicated scores. And um, there was a, a lot of quick uptake for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and in a way, the, the only bit of steering, conscious steering I've ever had to do was to make sure that wasn't all I was allowed to do. And to, to really insist on yeah, also doing older types of music or other types of music that people saw, okay, yeah, we, we, we want him also for um, Brahms and we want him for yeah. um, whatever this is. So and, I mean, yeah, it's definitely hard to, it is definitely hard to market someone as um, a, you know, a polymath of sorts. It's like, uh, you know, m- marketing usually requires, as you've said, a kind of focused discipline, yeah. which can be quite limiting yeah. um, someone in your position. I wanted to get your take on, before we come back to why we're here at the Barbican, um, the something, we're in, we're in the business of putting music on moving image, basically, usually short form music, moving image at uh, Gas Music. This is kind of a journalistic side hustle that I do. And... Um, what I have noticed is that it, latterly the um, focus is on timbre. Like the harmony tends to be simplifying if you listen to film scores. It's, um, let's take an example that everyone knows of a film score that's harmonically quite dense, which is the Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone score. That came to mind because I was on a flight last week and someone was watching it a few uh, seats in front of me. Um, it's very difficult to, it's difficult to play by ear. It's, you know, it's not harmonically simple. We're not just using standard, um, standard degrees and intervals on the scale. Um, I feel like that has gone by the wayside in the last 10 years. We're using very straightforward, you know, often minor to convey drama, um, uh, you know, one, four, five, one kind of sequences. And most of the di- the difference and most of the things that distinguish one piece of music from another comes in the timbre. It's about big drum sounds and big production elements. Um, I don't know if that's been if if that's been your ex, not your experience or if you've observed that as well, but um, I th- you know it strikes me as as part of the the reason for that is because now we make music on computers almost exclusively rather than at the instrument, so we can't vary the timbre, we can't vary the sound. When you're composing on a piano, the variation has to come from harmony. You know, uh, have you have you had and you know has that occurred to you at all? Have you seen anything in the world of, you know, composing in Cubase instead of on the page? Do you do any of that yourself, you know? Um, I have to say, um, what, <laughs> one of the things I don't make enough time for is, 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 is watching loads of films. Um, so my, my film experience is, 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 is narrower. Um, certainly, I think even in the uh, let's say, purely classical worlds, many composers are um, uh, using more and more composing on technology, composing on the computer. Um, Sometimes it's a great gift. Sometimes it's a great uh, time help. Um, uh, Sometimes it affects the music, sometimes not. Some people really manage to compose exactly what they dreamt of anyway, but they're just sort of typewriting it rather than um, pencil writing it. Yeah. uh, I think um, I think it would be fair to say that over the like latter part of the 20th century, in all sorts of music, um, maybe from the advent of the recording industry, yeah. um, exploring timbre and um, 
effect of 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 sound and quality of sound um playing with that um has been incre- increasingly on people's radar and yeah. um you'll be many people saying um you know by the 21st century we've had all s- sorts of harmony and uh, melody and God knows what influences coming on. It's just such a massive melting pot now that yeah, you, you write whatever you want and for whatever is needed and mm-hmm. what's going to make that emotional impact, whether it's for screen or for audience. Um, but that that um, whether that's uh, purely acoustic experimenting with qualities of sound and timbres of sound or uh, yeah, heavily produced digital experimentation um, I think that's that's been going on in all sorts of genres of music increasingly, and let's face it, has a has a a, a, a very powerful effect as well. You know, yeah. Um, right from Queen mucking around doing Bohemian Rhapsody of with course. all sorts of strange noises to yeah. um, uh, you know everything that we're experiencing today. Let's talk about why we're here at the Barbican because you're performing here, not just you, obviously, uh, in November. Indeed. On which date? The 16th and the 23rd. 16th and Two 23rd. Thursdays. Two Thursdays. And they're two completely different events, aren't they? Completely different programs. Okay. And this is a, a, a thrill for me. The, the LSO, as I said, were the, the, the first orchestra, professional orchestra ever I had the chance to conduct age 20. Yep. Um, this is the LSO, right? Yeah. So the London Symphony Orchestra conducted age 20. Uh, I think we may have missed that in those magical moments, you know. <laughs> and... They're they're an orchestra I've had the chance to come back to quite a lot, yeah. um, uh, both as composer and conductor uh, over the last fourteen years. Mm-hmm. Um, many nice projects, streams during the pandemic from St Luke's, yeah. um, a massive uh, event in the Tate Modern where we put on Stockhausen's Gruppen with three orchestras and three conductors. Yeah. Um, uh, there are yeah, fabulously responsive and flexible and phenomenal orchestra. Well, I understand and, from that world of film scoring, they basically show up, sight read the score and go, because yeah. you know, that's an amazing degree of professionalism and you get to work with that. So. Yeah. And uh, the truth is that I have never um, uh, performed with them here on the on the Barbican main stage. Okay. Um, it should have happened in the beginning of the pandemic, 2020, and uh, it's it's finally happening in 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 full glory. And it's really cool. We do um, the the first concert on Thursday, the 16th, is part of London Jazz Festival, and it's a program I've put together to build towards a really amazing new cello and voice concerto by South African. Um, emerging superstar Abel Salawatroy, um, who is a force of nature and gets the, uh, it's it's him and then a uh, uh, great uh, percussionist, Bernard Schimmelsberger, um, uh, playing a sort of African drum kit, essentially, along with the symphony orchestra. Yeah. But he uh, gets both the orchestra and eventually the audience singing. Um, this is a piece that I co-commissioned with my uh, orchestra in the Netherlands. And uh, we've we've performed already also in 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 Finland last week. It's it's going to be fantastic to do the the London premiere of that. And we um, I've I put together a program uh, of jazz inspired or folk music from around the world inspired uh, music to build towards it, right. um, including uh, one of my old teacher Gary Carpenter's uh, Dadaville to um, set us off with a 
a bang. Uh, and then the uh, Bartok dance suite. So we've got some Hungarian roots in there. And uh, an amazing piece that's not very often performed by Samuel Barber, uh, Medea's Dance of Vengeance, um, which emerges from this very uh, tranquil, spacey world with a, a little hint of mystery xylophone solo. It's very unusual orchestral opening. Um, takes us through a whole rhapsody of emotions to a really frenetic, funky finish with the <laughs> orchestra going crazy. It's, it, it will be a, a really fun programme. And I'm, I'm happy that that's a lot of um, elements of music that I'm interested in, the, the jazz background, also the uh, project with South African musicians, which we haven't spoken so much about, but uh, it's been another part of my life. And, and that coming together in, in one evening feels, feels really great. And then the following week, I mean, kind of polar opposite um, in that it's a, it's a purely symphonic program um, uh, with the legendary uh, violinist Isabel Faust. Uh, and this is also is a very special program. Uh, two of my other big musical passions within the classical canon are French music and Eastern European music. And um, this is a beginning of the 20th century kind of program uh, with two huge master week works, Debussy La Mer and uh, Janacek Taras Bulba, um, which have been a big part of me for long time. Taras Bulba was one of the pieces I performed in the Albert Hall for the proms with the National Youth Orchestra Amazing. on that huge organ. Um, great experience. Mm. And uh, Isabel will do a concerto at the beginning of each half. That's quite unusual for a classical program to feature the soloist twice in an evening. And she will do two shorter concertos that we don't usually hear because they're too short to be feature a soloist with. And one is um, Bartok's first violin concerto, which is paired with the Anacek and the other is uh, Chausson's very evocative um, French Impressionist uh, poem. So it's, it's, it's um, something I'm looking forward to so much to uh, reuniting with this great, great orchestra um, and uh, finally sharing that on this um, great stage with, with the London audience. So that's going to be the LSO with... Duncan Ward at the Barbican on the 16th and the 23rd, did we say? Okay, well, hopefully this will sell all the tickets. This is what's going to do it. So um, uh, having a gas is influences grand. Yes, as um, Chris reminded us off camera, um, before we go, because we've already done an hour, I didn't think that we had, but it's flown by because it's been such a... Um, it's just been great to hear about the adventure of your life. Uh, let's talk about uh, where I believe it started with roller skating, which I also can't believe because it's just so different from everything we've we've gone through. What's that all about? So, um, yeah, as I said, it wasn't a, a musical family growing up, but um, we were doing various different uh, sports and at a fairly early age, um, I had three older sisters and, and and they were off going to ballet class on a, on a, on a Thursday uh, evening. So I thought I should go and do that too. But uh, aged four, our parents um, uh, took us as a sort of Christmas treat to a, a pantomime, Peter mm -hmm. Pan, um, that was done on roller skates. Um, and um, I absolutely loved this. Yeah. And in the car on the way home, I said, uh, well... We, we all need to do this, you know, we, we, we need to start. So 
um, we looked up the club that had put on this show. And literally the next Saturday, all of us went. I mean, dad didn't put any skates on, but mum and uh, me and my five siblings um, uh, started skating. And it became a huge part of our life. We, wow. we were, in a few years, we were also performing in these pantomimes. Um, it, was, it was like figure skating on ice, uh, but on roller skates, on, on wooden rinks. Um, artistic roller skating, the sport is called. <laughs> And uh, I, yeah, I loved it, and I, I, we took it very seriously. And me and my younger brother went on to perform for the, um, or compete for the British team, uh, and win some European medals. Wow! Um, and uh, yeah, this was also going on uh, through my uh, teenage years. This in I mean, the background while you're writing musicals and playing trad jazz and yeah, all of that. It was a, it was a busy time, but it was fun, and I think. Um, Conducting is about using your body. Um, you're, you're, we don't hide behind an instrument, mm-hmm. you know. Yes, we hold a stick sometimes, um, but the, the 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 instrument, our mechanism of of conveying the music to the people in front of us, uh, is is gestural. Yeah. And um, I can't help but think that uh, that control I developed through the the roller skating, for instance. Although in that days it was um, hearing the music and performing to it. Mm-hmm. And now I wave my arms in the way I want and the music comes a split second after. Yeah. Um, it must have really helped. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, I miss the physical sensation of gliding along. Very occasionally I put my skates back on. Yeah. Um, but when a concert is at its most uh, intense and inspired, and I really feel like we're talking the same language with the musicians and the audience are super invested, um, it can feel like you're flying, frankly. I feel a bit like I'm skating again. You yeah. know, we're really soaring through these, you know, incredibly intense, uh, passionate moments of the music we're making. Well, that does appear to be the, um, I guess that's the, uh, the guy, the, the, the guy. got a good skating arm there, I must Is say. Is that yeah. really? Oh yeah. I very. could take it off. Okay. Absolutely, yeah. Well, well, that's going to be some uh, bonus, uh, DLC after this is we'll be skating around the Barbican stage with uh, no audience, but no, uh, it's the, um, it's the defining, uh, it seems to be the defining motion of your life. Um, you know, kind of gliding overall is what Whitman says, you know, going from, um, skating, and you know learning about how to you know use gesture and the body in an emotional way going through musical training and discipline through all these adventures all the way to uh here at the barbican with the lso in a few weeks i can only imagine what comes after this and i hope to be able to witness that to some degree as an audience member and a you know a spectator um you know, it's been a fascinating conversation and a fascinating life. Duncan Ward, is there anything you would like to uh, promote or give a shout out to before we wrap up here? No, only uh, um, thank you for a great chat as well and uh, a good exchange and and uh, come and join us at the, at the Barbican, really. It uh, should be two uh, really exciting concerts. I am too. Well, thank you very much, Duncan Ward. Thank you.